perhaps this, this sounds familiar to you. Uh, recently, I was with family and, and someone very dear to me, uh, dear to my wife and I, and uh, we, we started having a conversation in which uh, they came out to me. They came out to us. And we spent the rest of the evening, uh, actually till about 3 a.m., just talking about the journey to this moment that they were at. And along the way, uh, you know, we shared just about this person had, you know, grown up kind of around the church, processed that, just processed kind of their, uh, as they were growing up, where these kind of desires surfaced, just kind of listened to their, their story. And we just, we processed. We cried together. We laughed. And at, at some point, though, as we were talking, I remember it was somewhere, I think, between like 2 and 3 a.m., uh, this, this statement was said, well, why, why can't I have a relationship, in his case, with another man? Love is love, isn't it, Matt? Love is love. I've had this conversation actually many times now. Uh, I've even, though growing up in rural Ohio in the 90s, which was a time when you didn't talk about this because of close family members that were, had come out and were living behind the scenes and living out these desires, I, I was always aware of this and having these conversations from a young age. I've had many friends, family members, wrestling with same-sex attraction. Wondering what to do with this desire. Wondering what, what does this mean? Many of you, I imagine, as well. How do we respond? How do we think about this? The Urban Dictionary defines love is love like this. A phrase meaning that the love expressed by an individual or couple is valid regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity of their lover or partner. See, honestly, I've wrestled with this topic a lot. If you ask me, why can't I just have sex? Like, why can't I just hook up with people? Why can't I have sex indiscriminately? No one says it like that, right? But why can't I? I would know how to respond to explain not only, okay, here's, here's biblically what, what we see, but at the same time, why? why the, it's so clear that the psychological, spiritual, emotional damage that it does, that, that topic in many ways is easy, but it seems cruel. It seems cruel to deny an expression of love. What I'm going to do with this topic, you know, when they said love is love, I want to limit this to monogamous homosexual relationships. I know there are lots of, there are all kinds of places we can go with this, but I want to address what is the hardest. Questions like, if God gave me these desires, why can't I act on them? If they love one another, why can't they just be happy together? 
Right? These, are, these are real questions. I imagine you're getting the same questions. You're wrestling yourselves with the same questions. I want to share with you, I wrestle with these questions. I've wrestled a ton with these questions. It's confusing because experiencing reciprocal love, giving and receiving love from someone else, is at the core of the human experience. It's at the core of human desire. That's why seeing something like this picture, turns up something in us. If you can't tell from where you're sitting, this is called the Lovers of Boldero. And those are two skeletons that they unearthed. They're, they date them maybe 6,000 years old or so, but they found them buried, embracing one another. There's something about that picture that turns up something within us, this longing, this desire for that, that embrace, for that experience of love. When we see that, we, there's just something we say, that's what, that's what it means to be alive. That's such a part of being alive. Reminds me of the old Bedouin song, I love thee with a love that shall not die. So the sun grows cold and the stars grow old and there is not one of us who doesn't long to experience that kind of love, that kind of embrace with someone else. So you may say, I'm confused. Isn't the Bible pro-love? Isn't love love? Why not affirm wherever love is being expressed. Why deny that embrace? And listen, I don't like trite responses to this, and I imagine you don't either. So hopefully the stakes are high. Thankfully, what I've found and I think we'll discover tonight is no one takes this more seriously than God himself the issue of love. And so that's where we're going to turn tonight. We're going to get underneath, kind of behind, kind of the moment we're in right now culturally. We're going to look at this love that we're longing for. And then we're going to look at how do, how do we respond? How do we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, topics like this arrest us. They arrest us right now in this moment, in this time, in this day for, for many different reasons. But, Lord, they arrest us because, Lord, we, we do long. We long to experience love. We, love this. We, we long to see those around us experiencing love. And, Lord, we wrestle with these things. And, Lord, it can be so easy to think that things like this and our desires and Lord, there's, there's something unique here, but Lord, we always, Lord, come before you with our desires, and there's so many things that we find ourselves in somewhere different than where what you've revealed. And so, Lord, tonight, really, there's nothing different about our need for you to speak to us from your word. It's just amplified. We're just paying attention. And so, Spirit, we need you just as always conform our hearts to you, to your word, to 
tonight to your, your love. And so, Lord, would you do that work? Lord, would you give me the grace to speak well and clearly? Lord, would you give us the ability to wrestle with these things rightly from your word? And Lord, also where this isn't flippant, but this is real. And Lord, ultimately, we want to love you. We want those around us to experience your love, and we want you to be honored. And so would you show us how? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first what we're going to look at is God is love. Second what I'm going to look at is love as God. And the third what we're going to look at is an invitation to love. I'm, I'm going to be in 1 John 4, so you could start turning in your Bible there. I'm going to be there quickly. I'm going to kind of be in some different texts. Um, if you don't know, normally at Salt, we preach through books of the Bible. Sometimes that we do topical series like this one that we're doing right now. So usually topical, you're jumping around a little bit more than just sticking to one text. Uh, but so God is love. One of the confusing things about the phrase love is love is that it actually doesn't define what love is. The question still is, well, what is love, right? Is love merely our subjective experience of it? Is, is it just our desires? Is it just our passions? How do we think of love? What is it? If, if, and if love is just merely whatever we call it, then what is that thing that seems to be out there that is like this cosmic magnet that is just pulling us towards it? I mean, like, what, what is, it seems like love is actually this thing that is there. In other words, it's like love is this thing that's real. Like, are we all making it up? I mean, is love really something that is up for us just as a society and in different cultures to define however we want? Or is love actually something that is there? I think the fact that it's been in every single human culture across every single generation throughout time they desire it they run after it nations are invaded over it there's the whole what helen of troy thing right nations rise and fall over love because it's there it's something it's just beyond our grasp just waiting to be had and it can look at 1 John 4 starting in verse 7 beloved let us love one another for love is from god and whoever loves has been born of god and knows god see john can say love one another and he can mean it why because he says love is something john john can say love and it's actually not just kind of hey how subjectively in the moment you feel when you feel like love then do it he's saying objectively you should do something with your life towards other people in your life treat them a certain way have a disposition towards them because love is a thing and why is it a thing a reality because it is something that's been given us from god love is a reality therefore that we conform ourselves to if you did, you know, like my, my kids, if they're over there and like my, my, child, my children are always like beating on each other, okay? And so they're like hitting each other with a wooden spoon or whatnot. And then, and then I'm like, hey, that's not loving. And they look at me and they go, this is love to me, dad, right? Like I wouldn't be like, well, I got to roll with it, right? Like, no, I'd be like, that's not loving, right? Like it, it's not up for grabs. Love is something. I would say this is the loving way to treat your sister. And then you have to be conformed to love. 
because love is a reality we have to conform ourselves to. So what is it? Look at verse 8 then. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He says, God is love. Why is that significant? Because it means the love we long for comes from God. In fact, God is the ultimate love. In other words, the reason why love is real, the reason why it is there, the reason why we long for it is because what we're really longing for is the love, the ultimate love, which is God himself. In all Love that is genuine love flows from that love. So notice John can both claim that there is a loving way to act and an unloving way. Why? Because God is love. The reality of who God is defines love. Because you can know how to love and how not to love because there is a God who is love and he created us to love. And it flows from his very being, his very character. I know many of you, if you've heard me talk before, you've heard this, but I know some of you might not have heard this, so I want to make sure this piece, because it unlocks everything in the Bible. When it says that God is love, this is a profound truth that I think the church is going to rediscover in profound ways in our day, which is that from eternity past, we see this throughout Scripture, Jesus talking to the Father, as we'll see later in his prayer, saying, there's this love that I had with you before time began. It says in 1 John, God is love. What does that mean? It means that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in eternity past. God, in his very interactions with one another, he has been overflowing with delight and love in his relationship with himself. And at some point, God decided to express that love, that delight that he has for himself, and create the world that we live in. And he hardwired this world with all kinds of realities, all the things around this way the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19:1, because this we live in what's called a theater of glory. God created a world and he said, I want to make it's like painting on a canvas and saying, Look at the moon, look at the stars, look at all this. It's all to say how loving I am, how glorious I am, how beautiful I am, how faithful I am, how good I am, how true I am. As we live in a world that teems with this glory, and what John is saying here is at the core, the beating heart of that glory, when it went, and glory is just holiness gone public. God's holy character, he went public with it, and it's glorious, and part of that glory, the beating heart of that glory, is his love. And so the reason why we desire love is because it's literally hardwired into the world that we live in. And you and I were made in the image of God, which means we have the unique capacity to relate to God, which means to know that love, to walk in that love, to be embraced in that love, to know that love and share and experience that love as it overflows towards others. That's the biblical picture. It's an amazing reality. So here's the point. Love is a reality. That's why we long for it, and that reality is God. In other words, there is a love that defines love, an embrace underneath the embrace we long for, an eternal embrace. 
But if God is love and he created us to know his love, then his love must be what we conform our idea of love to. See, just like in the way he says, it's easy to talk about my kids, but what happens when it comes to our desires and our passions? We have to conform them to what he's revealed his love is. Not the other way around, conforming God's love to our passions and desires. If we do, we'll miss his love and we'll settle for a lesser love. And that's exactly what happens because when we do, love becomes God. Second point, love as God. Because God is love, he designed us to maximize our experience of his love with him and one another. And, and this takes many forms. There, there are lots, when we talk about the love of God, we can talk about the forms that he made, right? We have, we have friends, we have family, we have neighbors, we have pets, right? We have all these different ways that we express love. And we also have sexual union. We have marriage. I know union, I'm going to use the word sexual union. I know that sounds like so old school, but it gets to what, <laughs> in the, uh, what is it? The, uh, sorry, I'm trying to use old terms and I can't remember, but the reason why I say sexual union is because it gets to what happens. We're united. We're embraced. It's the deepest expression of love, the most intimate expression of love. See, there, there's a foundational truth here. Here's what I'm saying as a foundational truth, something that's inescapable, a reality that as I wrestled with this issue again and again and again, and guys, I, and I'll, I can come back to this afterwards if anyone wants to talk, all the things out there of trying to kind of get around this issue by interpreting the Bible a specific way, I couldn't wrestle it there. There's a foundational truth that if God is love and he created a world in love, then the only way to experience true love is within God's design of us and what he's revealed to us. And I know that sounds like a hard fact, but understand, as I'm going to talk about later, like when I wrestle with this, it's like I'm, I'm not, we're not wrestling with just some idea. We're not wrestling with some political issue. We're not wrestling with some social issue. We're wrestling with love himself. And we're wrestling because he wants us to know his love. And we're wrestling with this issue, saying, God, I want to know love. And we're actually wrestling with him. And we get so far distant from him and what this really is all about. Because we're so confused because of all the noise around us. But the fact is, to use novelist Marilyn Robinson, her phrase, there is a givenness of things. We are created. We are in a creation. And there's a givenness, a reality that we live in. Just like as a human I can't fly like a bird, so also I can only experience God's love within his design. Specifically, sex is designed as a gift in which we reflect the same love we have with God and share in an intimate way with another human being. What I want to do here quickly is I just want to hold up the view of sex that God has given us. 
There's a quote, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, he says this in a book on marriage. He says, John 17 tells us that from all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been adoring and glorifying each other, living in high devotion to each other, pouring love and joy into one another's hearts continually. See, actually, I didn't realize, that. doesn't that just prove what I just said? Anyways, um, Tim Keller said it, so I, I'm right. Um, sex between a man and a woman points to the love between the Father and the Son. Sex between a man and a woman points to the love between the Father and the Son. Is the reflection of the joy, self-giving, and pleasure of love within the very life of the triune God. No wonder, as some have said, that sex between a man and a woman can be a sort of embodied, out-of-body experience. It's the most ecstatic, breathtaking, daring, scarcely-to-be-imagined look at the glory that is our future. That's exactly how God describes, the Bible describes, when he brings Adam and Eve together. And, and the reason why I just want to hold this up is because so often this whole conversation becomes like the biblical, for so, let me, let me sorry, I'm not going to rant. For so long, the church did not hold up the beauty of what sex is biblically. So it's just kind of this dirty, icky, disgusting thing, so save it for the one you love, right? Like that was like the ethic. But the thing is, scripturally, sex and marriage is an amazingly beautiful thing. And this is what God, this is what's described in Genesis 2, is where we see it. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. See, when he says this, he's saying it's not good. In other words, it's not saying that, you know, creation, there's something wrong with creation, but it just means God isn't done yet. It means there's still something more to come, the fullest expression of his goodness. So God, in verse 19, this is Genesis 2 again, God made, makes Adam aware of the problem. He says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field of every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So he couldn't find a helper fit for him. There was something that wasn't good. What was it? Well, immediately he starts showing him, see all these pairs. In other words, every what's good is when you have your pair. You're designed to experience love with another. Then verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. Adam realizes all the animals. He's looking at the llamas and the bears and they're all cuddling, nuzzling up. Hey, what about me, right? Something's lacking here. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. I, I imagine during this time that what God does is he puts Adam to sleep, and he kind of does this little surgery on him, and he creates the woman. And I, I imagine what God does at this point is he kind of goes over, and he's like, stand, actually, stand behind that tree for a little bit, Eve. Just wait there. And then verse... 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. It's almost like kind of a delay there, because I think here's what, it's almost like Eve, wait here behind the tree, and then what, what Adam does is he comes to, and then God's like, oh, Adam, I, you're right, I forgot. How about her? And then Adam sees Eve. And it's the first time in scripture that we just have this poetic outburst. We have this poetic 
just like falling to the ground, overwhelmed, amazed, shocked, in awe of what God has done. If anything, it's where when God says he created man, he created him in his image, and it was very good. Adam, in that moment, he's experiencing this is good. It's very good. Thank you, God. And he breaks out right there into this. He says, uh, uh, sorry, I, I lost my, I got all carried away. Uh, this is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I was picturing the first time I saw my wife. I was getting a little emotional there. She shall be called woman. Sorry, I didn't, did I just win your attention by saying that? I didn't mean to do that. Uh, she's in Florida right now with our oldest, and so she's gone. And so I'm like, oh, hopefully not forever. Um, they're at Harry Potter land because um, they, they believe in witchcraft. So she, this is that last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Right? So Adam just overflows with this. And what I love about this is he, he just kind of, he, she's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She, be called, she shall be called woman. And what I love is uh, the, the word for man is, is ish or ish. And, the, and then it, it's, it's, for woman, it's isha. Okay? And it, it's almost as if Adam's just standing there. Like, I remember the first time I met my wife, and, I saw, and she tried to talk to me. And I, if you ask her about the story, I literally mumbled. Like, I just stared at her. She was asking me questions, and I was doing, like, this thing, apparently. <laughs> And I was just looking around, and it's almost like Adam does the same. Like he doesn't, he's just melting, and he realizes it's just this passion. He's like, I'm meant, I'm made for this. There's something in me that's unlocked, that I'm, I'm created to experience this. And, and in that moment, it's, a, it's like almost as if when he's saying, you're bone in my bone. It's not even, it's like, this is horrible poetry in my mind. <laughs> but, but at the same time, what he's just going is, you're, I'm, I am Ish, but you are Isha. Right? Like, that, that's what I imagine this is. Like, he, he's, he's naming her. Like, he's like, you're Ish. Uh, right? There's just this passion. And, and what happens there is it, re- it reflects when God brings a woman to her. It reflects both something about God. It reflects the sameness. God is one God, three persons. It reflects both the sameness they're both human beings. It's not one of the other beasts of the field. But at the same time, it also reflects that distinctiveness. Both being human, they are complementary as man and woman. And so again, what the Bible presents again and again, this is just the picture because what happens then is it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father. God's saying, I want you to experience this. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. No shame. Sex and shame are not together. No shame. Why no shame? Because they had the perfect, loving embrace of God already embracing them before they experienced this embrace. They were able to give each other, to give themselves to one another without fear of rejection, fear of performance failure, fear of being used. Their hearts were touched before their bodies were.
Song of Solomon 4 says, or Song of Songs says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb and my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. This is all an illusion to sex, okay? Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. The picture of sex in the Bible is of being drunk with love, basking in it, enjoying it. The call is, if anything, to maximize it. But here's the thing. It can only be done within the way love himself created it. God reveals he designed it to be within a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. Designed to experience true love and sex through fidelity in marriage, chastity outside of marriage. And from beginning to end, what we see in Scripture is if that we seek love outside that design, it will not go well. Specifically, seek the sexual expression of love outside of marriage or outside of that design. It will not go well. But also God reveals that embrace, that love, must be sought, as I said before, in a man and a woman, in a heterosexual union. That sexual love has to be sought and can only be expressed in a heterosexual union or marriage. Now, why? If you've been around me, you know I'm always asking the question, why? I'm just not that person who, like, it's like, the Bible says, I'm like, all right, like, why God? The Bible, this is one of the reasons why this part of it's been, honestly for me at times, very difficult because the Bible doesn't seem to exactly say, but there's, I can take a few stabs at it. One, it reflects again the love of the Godhead. Like I said before, the sameness, both are humans, but also distinctiveness between man and woman. And there's something about throughout Scripture, this is something in the West we are really going to have a rude awakening to in Christianity, which is that we are embodied beings, and how we use our body matters, and there are ways we're designed to use our bodies, and if we go outside of that design, it doesn't go well. God has designed our bodies to be used in specific ways, and one of the reasons why it's male and female is because, again, there's a distinctiveness, yet also a sameness. Another reason is that all sexual expression has the potential of creating life out of an act of love. Now, I know that post, I think that they will, a hundred years ago, the history books will say that there were nuclear bombs, cars, internet, and birth control were what changed the world the most we tend to not realize how revolutionary birth control was because we're able to separate the act of sex from the possibility of procreation, at least think the possibility of procreation. But the reality is that what we see in Scripture is that sex, not that every single time a child should be created, but that it always has the potential of creating life and therefore creating life out of a loving union. And so sex is meant to be an act that brings forth life 
But from Genesis 2 till the New Testament, the Bible is clear. I believe on its sexual ethic. Again, I'm happy afterwards to talk to anyone who would say that my exegesis or understanding of the text is off. I can tell you I've over and over again and tried to wrestle them to say, because I honestly, because of growing up in the family, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. There are many Christian views in Bible, what the Bible says that I frankly, they were very alien to me. This was one of them. And I wanted by any way possible to make the Bible say what I wanted it to say. But the Bible is clear. And I would say that honestly what I found is that the, the Bible's clear, but a lot of the pushback boils down to essentially the words of the serpent in Genesis 3 when the response is, but did God really say? He did. And listen, guys, my, my job is not to be God's PR agent. My job is not to water things down. My job is not to make things palatable. My job is not to just kind of avoid things. And why? Because then my words would be mirroring the words of the serpent. And even more, the reason why it would be wrong is because love himself is passionate about us, is passionate about us experiencing his love. He says, I am love. Experience love as I created it. Trust me. It's a message throughout scripture. Whenever it addresses sexual brokenness, trust me in the way that I've designed it. And I know we all struggle with some aspect of how the Bible defines its sexual ethic. We all do. For all of us, there's a place where our desires have to be conformed. At the end of the day, we have two choices, either live as God is love or love is God, which is to follow after Adam and Eve and define good and evil for ourselves and therefore redefine reality itself. But here's the thing. If we allow our idea of love to redefine what God says is love, then who is God really? See, God is God, but if our God always agrees with us, then perhaps we're just deifying our opinion. And also, here's the deal. To do so would be to be left without the reality of love and left to create it for ourselves. So you can live by the claim that love is love, but really we mean love is God. And when it's driven, and the way we define love is it's usually driven by our desires. Our desires tell us that this is what love is. And so in the end, love is love really means my desire is love. And that's helpful because often I, I, I get the question. I'm just going to answer two questions. If God gave me these desires, why can't I act on them? If God gave me these desires, why can't I act on them? I, I think it's helpful to rephrase that question as, I have these desires, why can't I act on them? I have these desires, why can't I act on them? It's helpful because we have many desires that we have that we, we don't act on every day. Having a desire itself does not legitimate acting on it. 
right? Like if, I, if I'm at the DMV and the person makes me mad and I want to yell at them or like take that big pen and stab it in their face when they're, you know, when they want me to go get another form, right? Like just because I have a desire to do that doesn't mean it legitimates the desire to do it, right? <laughs> that's, not how, that's not how ethical thinking works. We have to reframe it. I have desires. How should I act on them? I have desires. I have these desires. I do, and we should be honest. I do have these desires. And listen, there is, it doesn't help to just go, nope, nope, I don't have these desires. Guys, listen. I, one of the things today is at least the fact that you can actually share this stuff and it isn't just shamed right away. Like, well, that's different. It's like, listen, all of us have, have stuff about us that are desires that biblically are defined as needing to be realigned. And this sexual orientation, is, same-sex desire, is a desire that is just another desire that needs to be realigned. And you should be able to share this with others. When I was a kid, this was something that was so shame, no one ever talked about it, and that was not healthy either. But we have desires. How should I act on them? Then we can answer the question, if I believe God is love and designed us a certain way, then I already have my answer. I, I can read scripture, I can wrestle with scripture, and I can, I can come to that. But however, if love is God, then my passions, my desires will drive me wherever they will. In other words, the question is just a smokescreen for what's already been decided. And what happens if love, desire has become my God, then the problem is that's deifying desire. And I'm telling you, you don't want to live your life deifying desire. Second question, if they love, why can't they just be happy with them? Like if they, if they love one another, how, why can they not just be happy with one another? Here's what I would say. They, they can seek happiness with them. They can. But with that person alone. Here's what I mean. At weddings, there's always a part where I talk about the fact that what we're doing here, I'm like, okay, you're the audience, you're the witnesses. Here's the party, who are the witnesses. You are the couple. But it's a mistake to think that this marriage is between the two of you. A marriage is between three parties. You, your spouse, and God. And it's the foundation for any healthy marriage. That it would not be that you find your love just in the other person. See, if you don't have God at the center of your relationship, what will happen is that person becomes your sole source of experiencing love. And that puts a weight on the person. I've seen this again and again and again. It just destroys marriages. But here's the thing. If we say, I want to have marriage, an expression of love, you can seek that happiness with the other individual. But the only thing is that then if, but if love himself has defined love in this way, then he will not be a party to that union. In other words, you can both be together, but you can't have the third. And that is actually the hardest part. At the end of the day, I know this is not easy. But I think at the end of the day, what we have is you have a picture of love coming from God and what he's revealed. And I think that the Christian view, the vision of a sexual ethic is more fulfilling and provides more resources for human flourishing. And it boils down to that. So let's go last, the invitation to love. Again, I, I know these aren't easy things, but the revealed true things. Honestly, this is one of many difficult things in the Bible. 
And again, I think one of the helpful ways of thinking about this is that we're not just wrestling with ideas. We are actually wrestling with God. And what I found is that while I wanted to make God conform to my desires, his love conformed me to his love. And at the end of the day, salvation at its core is being saved from our desires. At its core throughout Scripture and what we all believe and confess is that we, our desires don't reveal. We, we don't know what we really want. Jesus says from the cross, forgive them, Lord, for they do not know what they do. God saves us from our own desires. And the fact that God would do that is love. But how does he do it? How does he save us? I think there, there's one place that's really always intrigued me, where the love of God comes up, and I think it's helpful to marinate and, and contemplate. The end of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, it's this, the last verse in 26. He said, I made known to them your name. He's praying to the Father. I know I'm going a little bit long. I apologize. But I want to make sure I'm able to touch all the things here. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And there's something I think that is, so Jesus prays that we know God's love, the same embrace of his father that he's experienced from eternity past. And he's saying, I came so they would know it. But this is perplexing, and here's why I, I say it. Because 11 verses later, listen to what Jesus says. Right after he said, the Father loved me, from eternity past. This is after Judas in the garden. He turns to Peter and he said to him, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Remember the first time that I realized when I read those straight together when I asked myself, if the Father loves him, why would he give him this cup? Why the suffering? Why, why would he give? If, Father, if you love me, why would you give me this cup? And we're looking at going, what, how in the world could that be love? How in the world could there still be love between them? One, it's because he does it because he loves us. And see, there's something about the fact. Well, let me go here. See, there, there's no easy answer. Why can't I just be with the person I'm attracted to? There, there isn't. I'm not going to give you some magical answer. But at the end of the day, it comes down to how love himself created us to experience him, to experience his love, and we have to trust him. At the end of the day, either this God is who he says he is, or honestly, the whole thing, once you start pulling out certain threads of things, the whole thing needs to be shelved. But if he is true, it will mean a dying to living merely for our desires. Whether same-sex attraction, desire to look at porn, to hook up. One day for you, when you're married, it will be to stay faithful. At times, it will not only be confusing, it will feel like death. It will feel like the cup.
But here's what the scene in John teaches us. In the midst of what feels like, and this is the thing, <laughs> it's not some trite, simple, when I'm talking to friends who are struggling, who are wrestling with same-sex attraction, it's not just like some little thing. It's this thing that's right there, and because we live in this hypersexualized world, it's just constantly, like all the time, right there. And you can, it's so helpful for them to be able to cry out, Lord, God, why have you given me this cup? Why do I live with this reality? And here's the thing I, I don't know why. For those of you who are wrestling right now with this, I don't know why, God, why you have this desire. You don't know why, ultimately. But here's what we do know. What we do know is that oftentimes what we think is that because I have this desire, there's something God's just done with me. God doesn't love me. There's something deeply just flawed with me that's irredeemable. And, and oftentimes in Christian circles, that's how we, we approach this. We're just heaped shame on. But here's the thing. In the midst of it, you have this cup, in the midst of it, it does not mean that God does not love you with an eternal love any more than when he gave Jesus the cup that he didn't love him with an eternal love. You can know one thing, the one thing Jesus held to, he loves you with an eternal love. There is a love that can be had and embrace deeper than the embrace we can find in another person. And I imagine there's something else as well. Jesus submitted his desires for ease and comfort. Uh, imagine on, at that moment that if it's like what you, to express love, there have to be a lot of easier ways to do this. Why don't I redefine it? But Jesus had a will that was conformed to true eternal love. And as a result, God could give us his true love, his pure holy love that freed us from sin and frees us from desires. And see, in conforming our wills, our desires to his love, we learn to love God as he loved us. See, in some ways, what we see in Jesus is conforming living conformed to the love of God and his calling upon our life. Laying down our wants and desires in order to be conformed to true love. And here's the thing. I know this is like, this, it's radical to even say this about this issue. But that is deep, deep, deep wisdom. To live a life where you learn to conform your desires to love and the call of God upon your life. And what God says is my love is there to hold you and sustain you in the midst of it. One truth that you have is from Hebrews 4 that Jesus says, I am a sympathetic high priest. I know there is not one desire, one reality, one issue that human beings struggle with that Jesus is unaware of that Jesus doesn't care about, that Jesus is distant from. Jesus, well, let me be careful. Not Jesus' experience. I'm getting into Trinitarian stuff here. But Jesus, he knows, he understands, he experienced the agony. And 
every day the reality is that he walks with you and he says, I will give you an embrace, an embrace beyond anything in this world. And so often we live our lives thinking that because we don't have this issue, then we can just go through person after person embracing people and we get to live life. And he's saying, that's not love. That's an embrace, seeking an embrace. Lesser love, seeking the ultimate love, but you'll never find it in those lesser loves. And what he's saying is no matter what, you can have me. And I think that deep wisdom of conforming your desires to God's love and his calling on your life, I think that your generation is in a unique position to learn and lead with that reality in profound ways. If you'll let God conform your desires to his. So I want to address those of you who are wrestling with same-sex attraction. A few addresses before we close. If you're so struggling with same-sex attraction, I think God has chosen you to demonstrate what wisdom, this wisdom looks like in action. In other words, God has a calling upon your life. God has a ministry for you. You are fighting a fight that is exhausting in our day. And you need to be able to be open with others. You need to be able to have others around you who come around you, who support you, who walk with you in the midst of it. And what I would say is there's a a helpful way to think of this is there's a difference between attraction and action. Again, so often, because we have this attraction, what will happen is that there's so many things that come into our mind that just, again, I'm irredeemable, just living with this guilt because I have this attraction. But biblically, what we are oriented towards is faithful action. And so what I would encourage you to do is, is not to just kind of wallow in this, the reality of the attraction, but instead to be praying to God, God, where, where can I move to faithful action in this and to focus on the faithful action? And if you're in the life of those who are struggling with attraction, don't just constantly, like, you, you still have this attraction, you still have this attraction, you still, like, that's, that's not helpful. What's helpful is to move towards what does it look like faithful action and how can I come around you and encourage you and support you so you can live out a life of faithful action in the midst of this. Also, and this is a little bit addressing those who don't struggle with same-sex attraction, there's an important passage in the New Testament, well, one of those ones that you don't see, put on coffee mugs. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, all sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, as, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Notice Paul includes homosexuality among other sins. There's something here probably for all of us in this list. But second, notice the solution. 
to be washed with the blood of Christ. In other words, you're not saved by being heterosexual. This is key. The hope, salvation, is not in being in one social category or another. See, for all of us, we have to be washed of our sexual brokenness, and the only way to be washed of it is in the blood of Jesus Christ. For everyone. The hope is not to be conformed just to some heterosexual model. The hope ultimately is to be washed and made clean, and made be embraced in the love of God. All of us are sexually broken. All of us desire wrong loves because we lack God's true love. And the prescription is the same for all. We need to be washed and embraced through the loving sacrifice of Jesus. Our sexual attraction doesn't define us any more than race, gender, socioeconomic status. Jesus does. So if you have friends, focus on Celebrating where they're faithfully fighting. Listen. Understand. What I would say, how did I respond? So you might be wondering that since I shared at the beginning. Here, here's what I want to say when we're responding to, you know, talking to friends who are struggling with this. I would say don't expect them, don't expect anyone to follow Jesus' sexual ethic, his love ethic, if they haven't experienced his love. Don't expect someone to like follow the kingdom rules if they don't know the king. Jesus says a lot of radical stuff. Like deny yourself and die. Deny yourself and die. Oh, so I just die? Well, yeah, do it. Then you can have Jesus. You got to know there's life there. So this is essentially summarized. I would say, I'm not sure I know exactly what you mean by love is love. But it sounds like you've been longing for love, and I want that for you. I do. What breaks my heart. In fact, I want love just like you. It sounds like you're on the road I've been down. All the ways I've looked for love left me looking for more. Honestly, it's confusing. But I found before I can really figure out how to find love, I need to encounter true love. And then I asked, would you want to journey with me to who I think best embodies that love? Jesus. And say, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I don't pretend to have a corner on love. But I think he does. And then what it usually is, is going, starting with the gospel and reading through it and encountering Jesus. I'm not so concerned about changing somebody's behavior right now. I want to see them encounter Jesus because here's the thing. My words and my arguments aren't going to change a heart, but encountering God and his word and allowing his spirit to do that work when they encounter Jesus, that is what changes hearts.
And it's not until they see broadly their need for Jesus and they experience his love that they'll be able to even see why there'd be this response. Listen, you, you're already aware of this, but there are going to be many sexual refugees coming from, or, or sexual refugees, refugees coming from the sexual revolution into the church. Many refugees coming from the sexual revolution coming into the church in the coming years. And what I would say is don't get distracted by all of the political stuff. Don't get distracted by all of the rancor. Just walk with them. Bring him to Jesus. And let him do his work. Let him reveal his word, his love. That's it's what they need. And shame will only send them looking for that love in other places. Trying to find God's embrace in a lesser embrace. But there is, in closing, ultimately only one loving embrace that will satisfy us. And that's exactly what's offered on the cross. And here's the thing, how? How is it described on the cross? When the Father who eternally loved the Son sent him to the cross and he bore our sin, how does love himself, how does he wash us and make us clean? How does he embrace us? It says this, now the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour darkness. The sun grew dark, cold. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemi sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also we're opened. What is going on there with all of the stuff that's happening? The earthquakes, the sun going dark. The, it's like the heavens are quaking. It's like the fabric of the universe is fraying. Why? This is the moment when the sun, this is as close as scripture gets to describing what happens within the Godhead. The Godhead who has been eternal love. And the Father sent his beloved Son, his eternally beloved Son. He sends him to the cross. And in that moment when our sin is on him and our brokenness is on him, and he took it upon him, what happens is that brokenness, it's almost as if it's describing it breaking the Trinity and this, as close as it can get to describing it. And what happens is the creation he made in his love begins to shake and it begins to go dark because it says if all of reality that's created in love, when love is about to be broken, you're wondering, will it stay? He's putting it all on the line. He's putting his very heart on the line, his very self on the line. He's saying, so you might know me. So you might know my love. This is my love. See, on the cross, the most loving embrace was broken so that the most broken might be embraced in love. On the cross, the most loving, eternal embrace was broken 
so that us, we, the broken, might know his love. So wherever you're at, and I know this, whatever you might be bringing in here tonight, whatever, when you think about your, just whatever are the actions that you know, God, I haven't moved towards faithful action, I haven't moved towards unfaithful action, or the things that have been done to me, all these things, what you need to hear is you are not too far from God's love. It's impossible. You know why? Because you live in that world that wasn't undone when the worst possible thing ever happened. And now he holds open his arms wide and he says, come to me. Know my love before you run after any of these other things. Please come to me and know my love. It is a love that will sustain you. It will be a love that will transcend any love in this world that you can know. So in the midst of confusing mantras like love is love, now is the time to ground yourself in truth, both what God has revealed about his love, but also immerse yourself in his love. Don't hide. Whatever it is, I'm telling you, don't, just don't hide. Don't allow your desires to conform you to lesser loves. Fight to conform yourself to his love. And I'll say contend for one another in prayer. To experience his love. Knowing that love himself is waiting to embrace you so that when you embrace another human, it will only deepen your enjoyment of his love. So salt, here's where I'll end, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of your desires, in the midst of your brokenness. Start with Christ's invitation to his love. The questions, the conversations. Because here's the thing, only he can fulfill that old Bedouin song. Because only he's the one who can sing it over you, because only he's the one who actually... Did the sun actually go dark? He's the only one who, when the stars began to grow old, he conquered it. He says, I love thee, I love you with a love that shall not die till the sun grows cold and the stars grow old. Not all that claims to be love is love. God is love. And he is the love we long for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we, Lord, we want to know we need your love. Lord, we are desperate to experience your love. Lord, there are so many things around us. This is just one area where we wrestle with this, but Lord, our, our hearts have wrongly ordered loves, Lord, and we run after so many things, ultimately trying to find you, ultimately trying to fill that hole that's ultimately fulfilled in you. Lord, we don't know up from down. Just feel overwhelmed in a sea of desires and emotions and Lord, would you teach us how to walk on the water? Lord, I pray for those in this room that 
attraction is very real. And Lord, at the place tonight, they're at that place of just not knowing where to find hope in the midst of it, how to respond. Lord, would you right now, would you draw them to yourself? Would they have others around them they can turn to, they can process this with? Lord, those of us who are walking with others, or would we not shame? Would we not make this some separate issue? But Lord, in its own forbidding category, but Lord, we would see it that we are fellow sinners. And the gospel is the same for all of us. Jesus, would you wash us with your blood? And would we only find our life there, our sense of cleanliness there, not in anything else? We thank you that you are love. And therefore, we can know it. And when we turn away from your love, you sought us. Thank you, Jesus.